Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we're with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, and I'm Matt Till. Hey, guys. Hello, hey. Matt. It's just so good it? to hear your voice. No kidding. You drug me in for this. Oh, we didn't we drug to... you. Don't accuse us of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Good to be here. Oh, man, it is good to be here. Well, I was looking back and uh, saw that it was in episode 72 that we were all three last together. And so this is episode 86. So there has been a little bit of time that has gone between uh, us being together. Just a little bit of time. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah, fine. What is the, what's the song? Reunited and it feels so good. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You guys yeah. don't know that song? Come on. I think Michael just dated us. It's <laughs> okay. <Or> himself. <laughs> I would say. It's okay. It's fine. I actually do love music that is not current, but that's just not one that didn't immediately come to mind. Yeah, that's right. Well, I would, so, I'd, I'd sing it for you, but then we'd have a, a mass uh, exodus of people listening to us. Yeah. So why are people listening to us right now, Matt, Michael? Why are we here today? Yeah, well, um, we are talking about raising resilient children, and we've been in a series uh, on this topic and have had some fantastic guests um, to interact with us on different issues, uh, whether it's on race or theology or discipleship or parenting. Um, uh, and so we're very grateful for that. And so this is a continuation of that series, and we had a very special guest on uh, someone who is familiar to many of our listeners, I'm sure, uh, Josh McDowell. Yeah, it was it was kind of shocking to be able to have the opportunity to sit down with Josh and uh, see somebody that was influential in my life and to be able to talk with him. And I was excited, Michael, that we were able to kind of, again, talk with him through the vein or through the avenue of how do we raise resilient children and what do what is he seeing and what has he seen uh, through the course of his ministry? Yeah, I mean, and he has had such a long ministry um, and an impactful ministry all over the world. And you'll hear us, I think, uh, yeah. on this podcast, talk a little bit about Josh's experience in ministry and uh, even an intersection of uh, my uh a relationship with Josh in my college days, but even in uh, church planting days in Romania. And uh, so it was fun to reconnect with him and uh, uh, really begin to address some important issues that are confronting parents and children uh, today. So it, it was a podcast, uh, Andrew, I think you'd agree that um, was at the same time something uh, expected and something unexpected. And so we felt that it Fair. was important for us. Yeah, we felt that it was important for us to, uh, to interact some more uh, with Josh's ideas that he raises and, um, and 
yeah, just let our, our listeners also engage with those ideas as well. What you're going to hear in this podcast is not um, necessarily something that we all 100% agree on. There are issues for sure in raising resilient children. And Josh, uh, I think, beautifully raises those issues in regards to uh, what we're confronting in our culture today. But there were some ideas that that uh, arose in the course of our conversation that, um, uh, Josh, is it fair to say that they took us by surprise and we want to give a little bit more context to that conversation? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's never really good to uh, try to jump in off the top rope uh, on somebody who is a guest who is just spitting game and they're going fast and they're saying a lot of things. And, and you had a thought like on a comment that was seven minutes ago, and it's just not always the best time to be like, Hey, time out. So we're trying to let you all know that what you're about to listen to, uh, is worthwhile. It is absolutely, absolutely. worthwhile. Um, but it yeah, probably won't. What was that? I was just going to say that there, I think you'll agree, Andrew, that there will be some of our listeners who absolutely agree with Josh. And there will be some of our listeners who will absolutely disagree with him. But because of who we are as a physiology, we want to be sure that it, we're giving voice to different perspectives. Um, uh, we don't want to monopolize uh, just with our voice but we want to offer opportunities for other voices uh, to speak into issues that are going on. Okay. Well, uh, let's, without further ado, let's dive into this. And in the spirit of doing theology and community, what you're going to hear listener is uh, the unedited version of um, Michael and Andrew's interview with Josh McDowell. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to have some concluding thoughts with that. So here is now that interview. Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are with Michael, our resident Ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, Associate Pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and we have an incredible special guest today, one Josh McDowell. Josh, we are so thankful that you are with us today. Uh, but before we give the mic to you, Michael, I wanted to kick it to you. Uh, where are we going with this podcast today? Well, this is a continuation of a series that we've been doing on raising resilient children. And uh, of course, this comes out of our passion for the study of that early church in Ephesus and, and what we learned from the Apostle Paul that uh, we, we are to train up our children. Um, and so we want to be sure that we're addressing this. And we know that youth are confronted with some very challenging issues in the world today, uh, as much in North America as, as well as in other places. And COVID has done nothing uh, short of making those challenges all the more acute. And so I'm grateful that we have uh, our guest on today, Josh McDowell. We were just recounting, Josh, with you before we came on um, uh, of our experience with you. And um, what a wonderful, wonderful ministry you have had for uh, many, many years. So It goes thanks. all the way back to when we went on the ark together. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're trying to implicate me in the... In the uh, I was about to say, I was like, shots have been fired. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, th- we're so grateful that you were you're joining us today. Um, I've had a great time thinking back to my first experience with you, Josh, and um, it was really with one of your first books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I can remember purchasing that as a high school student in uh, 1980 um, because I wanted to to be sure that I really understood my faith. So, uh, so grateful for your ministry over these years in in my life and uh, in the lives of many. For some of our listeners, uh, you are an, a mainstay in homes. Like every, everybody knows who Josh McDowell is. Uh, for some of our people who might not know about you, could you give us a, like three quick things? What have you done uh, in your lifetime in ministry that would, would at least raise an eyebrow or two? Well, grown to be good looking, handsome, intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect for radio, right? Yeah. Well, I've had the privilege of giving over way over 27,000 talks in 170 countries Mm. to right about in live audiences, not dead audiences, but in live audiences, about 45 million young people from all over the world. And the key for me in speaking to young people is one, read what they read, listen to what they listen to, watch what they watch and interact with them. And then you gain a foundation to speak truth into their lives. Mm, well, that's that's beautiful. And I, I can remember, Josh, in 1990, right after the fall of communism, uh, you came to Timisoara, Romania, to do a talk. And it was... Uh, Timisoara. Timisoara. I'm sure you remember that. Uh, what an yeah. exciting time. There was a university student who attended that talk in Timisoara that was from the city of Craiova. He was a medical student. And uh, not long after your talk, I met that university student who was uh, very influential in motivating us to begin uh, a work in the city of Craiova. And and so there's just that beautiful connection of uh, how you influenced one young person who ended up influencing us to move to Craiova and begin a new church. And... uh, so yeah, I love uh, I love your heart and how you have over the years uh, really have uh, strived to connect with youth around the world. I remember in Timisoara, hundreds of students had been killed by the police mm-hmm. when they tried to riot, and uh, in the main plaza they have the graves of all of them with a little picket fence put around them. People brought flowers and everything. And it was a very sad occasion. I had the privilege of standing there speaking to several thousand that there is life after death and having all these students who had been killed buried behind me. And it was a very sobering time and a sobering audience. Uh, But out of that time in Timisoara, a lot of churches were started, uh, new works were started, everything. Uh, Yeah, it was Mm. a good day. Well, like we've said, we're grateful that you're joining us. You have spent over the past uh, several years, a lot of time, especially focused on not just college students, but high school students and younger. Um, What are you seeing in youth culture today? If if you were to give us a 50,000 foot view, what is it that you're seeing in youth culture? I think you're seeing smarter kids. Mm. Um, significantly smarter than before. 
maybe because taking seriousness of life a little more, but I'm seeing young people who are lonely and depressed. They're facing things without a foundation for facing it. The world has become so small that young people now, something like the shooting that happened in Florida, young people felt the emotion of it in Minnesota. Why? Because everybody had their cell phones out taking pictures. And as a result, young people everywhere are experiencing the emotions of other kids in other parts of the country and the world. And second, they're lonely, very lonely. This is rated the loneliest generation in history. And I didn't, I didn't realize until I started studying loneliness how deadly it is, uh, how it affects your very life. And then along with loneliness, um, they're facing depression. Um, they have more opportunities to access spiritual truth but they seem to be accessing it less. I mean, there's more churches, better churches, more youth groups, uh, more Christians out there speaking everything. And young people today have tremendous access to truth and spiritual insight and all. But it seems like we're waiting for the young people to come to us instead of us going to where they are. Mm -hmm. And I've learned one thing over the years, you wanna impact young people? You go where they are. You meet them on their turf. And the first thing you do, you don't start talking to them, sharing with them or anything. You listen to them. That is so critical. You go to their turf and you listen to them. And, um, and I, um, I find that the more questions I ask young people, the wider the door is for me to share Christ. Uh, the more they feel they're participating in the in the uh, conversation, but um, we have a generation out there that can literally reach the world, but we need to reach this generation. Yeah, yeah. Walk us through that a little bit, Josh. Um, what kind of questions are you asking young people these days? Well, of course, whenever they share something, I'll say, "Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that?" Second. Um, what has it done in your life? What has it done in your life? If they tell about bringing about changes, and I'll ask, well, what are you doing with your life then? I always bring it back to the Great Commission and a great vision to have your life impact the world. Um, and a key question I probably ask every young person, uh, do you live with your father? Mm. And whether they say yes or no, I'll say, well, what kind of relationship do you have with your father? The reason I say that, all research shows that the key factor in a young person's life is not near the, as much the mother as it is the father. Uh, and it's hard for a young person to grow up and really be healthy if they haven't grown up with a loving, intimate relationship with their father. It's not, it doesn't mean they can't do it, but few. Mm -hmm do it. The, the, the power of a father is so incredible uh, in a child's life, whether a guy or a girl. And um, so I always ask about love. And the second thing I always ask about 
almost to anyone, whether a youth or adult, a pastor, whatever. I'll just at the right time in the conversation, I'll casually ask, do you watch porn? Most people, almost everyone is. Most people will say no. So then I'll look them right in the eye and say, are you lying to me? And then the truth comes out. It's incredible. I was with a Christian leader in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I said, do you watch porn? And he got so upset with me. He said, that's a wrong question. That's, that's a disrespectful question or anything else. Well, I said, are you? He said, no. Mm-hmm. And he walked away. The next day he found me and he got me alone, had nobody around. And he said, how did you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what he saw. I said, how did I know what? He said that I'm addicted to porn. I said, I didn't, but now I do. And I'm about the last person you want to know that. Uh, and so those are two questions about the father and about porn. Uh, I almost think one of the words of greeting to somebody else is, do you watch porn? Because porn is, is probably one of the two or three most destructive things in the world. It's, porn has destroyed more, more marriages, more relationships, uh, more pastors, more young people than anything in history. And uh, so those are two of the main questions I ask. Yeah, I mean, those are such good questions and such important questions uh, to, to ask. Josh, when you th- when you think about that, uh, it, the addiction that we're seeing um, really a- a- across sexes, across ages to uh, pornography, do you when you think about that, is that where you're seeing uh, the indication of loneliness in the lives, particularly of youth, uh, of depression? Uh, is there a correlation or some type of fact? absolutely there's a correlation? Mm-hmm. Loneliness and depression leads to porn mm. as part of the solution. But when you start watching porn, you get more lonely and you get more depressed. It's a it's a it's uncanny. It's a vicious cycle. Loneliness leads to porn. Porn leads to loneliness and leads to porn and just becomes a vicious cycle going deeper and broader and deeper and broader. And the same thing with depression. Um, and that's one of the reasons why globally porn is such a big factor is that loneliness is such a huge factor in every, every culture of the world, every country. Loneliness and depression, especially among those 24 years old and younger, are major factors, and they all lead to porn. Mm. Wow. Wow. And it's so sad because everything that somebody would get into porn for, and why, why someone would seek that out, is the desire of a connection, wanting to have that connection, and then they short-circuit it. They lack the connection they're seeking, and like you said, it's a vicious cycle that only leads to more of a lack of connection, more disconnection. Um, yeah, but think of it. Think of it. Porn is anonymous. No one, mm-hmm. You can't look at somebody and see porn. It's accessible. It's just one click away. It's affordable. 90% of porn is free, but that 10% makes more money than top corporations. It's addictive. One look can hook. You keep going back. It's available. You can't miss it. There's 2.3 billion pornographic web pages. 2.3 billion, one click away. 37% of all internet activity is pornography. 35% of all downloads pornography 
it's aggressive. People say, well, oh, my kids are good kids. My kids won't look for porn. I said, boy, do you miss the point. You probably do have great kids that won't look for porn. They won't find porn, but porn will find them. Mm. And they have a strategy in how to find young people. It's appealing, it's captivating, it's apprehensible. It never needs translation. Any country in the world, you don't need to translate porn. Porn goes into every nation in the world. And so it's quite easy. But think of this. 87% of young men said they use pornography in a major study. Another study admitted to using pornography, another 87% of the men, 31% of the women. 49% of women, this is a dangerous statistic, 49% of women, 16 to 26 years old, believe viewing porn is totally acceptable morally. Mm. And it's higher with men. Um, there's 2.3 billion pornographic web pages. Uh, half of all evangelical pastors look at porn. 77, 87% of young men totally, 77% of Christian young men visit pornographic sites every week. Mm. And nobody mm. talks about it. Nobody says much. Um, and the reason is so many of our leaders are watching porn. So many of our pastors are watching porn, parents, fathers, especially. And so they don't confront others with it. Um, And it's the greatest threat to the church. Uh, That and critical race theory are probably the two greatest threats globally uh, to the church. So um, that's why we've got to address pornography. That's why fathers need to address it with their sons. Pastors need to address it with the church. I'm astonished, frankly, to hear uh, how pervasive it is. I'm not. Can you be astonished and not surprised? Uh, I, I don't know if you can be or not. I I can be uh, astonished and not surprised. You know, it's tragic, isn't it? Um, and Josh, you said something that I think is is uh, very important, and we don't want to miss that. That uh, that people aren't talking about it because it, it is uncomfortable uh, to talk about. And so many people are involved in it that it makes it uncomfortable to talk about. Give us some strategies. Um, if you were sitting down with a pastor or a parent, what would you say to them? What, what, what are some strategies that they could put in place even now to address the issue of pornography uh, with the, the youth in their church or, or their children? Uh, the first thing I would do is ask them if they're watching porn because it's a 50, 60% chance they are. And if they are, you can say what you want about reaching young people and it won't do any good. Mm. So I'd have to decide, uh, satisfy my own mind in my life, their situation with pornography. And then I would tell them, you need to become informed. Now it's a little hard to become informed with pornography because if you, If you search for porn, anything relating to porn, up will come all these pornographic web, 2.3 billion web pages, and uh, hundreds of millions of sites will pop up in your your iPad. And so you have to be very, very careful. And um, there's some some books out there. Uh, I tell them, you know, go to the, you know, search out Christian books on porn. And you'll find some pretty good ones that you can read. But you've got to become informed. 
Second, if you're a man, you don't talk to girls about it. If you're a woman, you don't talk to men about it. It's so subtle. It's so easy for people to become involved sexually because they're discussing the issue of porn. And so one, you need to make sure in your own life that you're free from it. Second, you need to make sure you understand it. And the reason I say that, what most people don't understand is this. Now I'm speaking this off the top of my head, but alcohol takes about seven seconds to get to the brain. Heroin about six seconds, I think. Um, Others a few seconds more. It takes porn one half of one second from the time it flashes by in front of you to when it reaches your brain. And when porn passes by in front of you, you're not even looking for it. It just flashes by your screen within one half second. That's, that's how fast it is. It starts a physical, biological change in your brain. And most people don't understand that porn is a problem of the brain before it's even a moral problem. It changes your brain and it creates a system of cells that fire together. You probably heard the phrase cells that wire together, fire together. And when you look at porn, a certain set of cells fire. And every time they fire, they wire together. And then every time you just glance at porn or anything else, the connections become deeper and broader. It's like you walk through a forest. And the first time you walk through it, you just knock down a few pieces of grass. Then you return that way, you knock down a few more. And then you go back and forth. After a while, the grass is beaten to the ground. And then there's a little bit of dirt in the center. And then the dirt becomes wider. Then you have a path through the woods. That's what happens in your brain between your cells. Mm. And they get deeper and wider and stronger. And as a result of that, it gets to the point where you lose your freedom to reason, to think. You say, oh, come on, look. When these cells start wiring together, they fire together. So you might be driving down a freeway and see a risque bulletin board or some music, something that reminds you of porn. Instantly, those cells fire in your brain and you got to go masturbate. You got to go find porn. You got to go find a woman. And you can't read, it's very, few people can ever reason themselves out of it. And uh, so one of the first things a father, anyone, a pastor needs to know is that porn is a neurological problem. It literally affects your brain. And wow, that's just one of many things. Um, it, after a while, because of the way it affects your brain, in a short period of time, it's very difficult for any man, say, watching porn, to look at a woman and not undress her. Mm. Can you imagine probably half the pastors in the country get up, and when they stand behind the pulpit teaching the Word of God, they look out and they see a woman that's attractive to them, maybe a tight sweater or a revealing blouse, something else. Instantly, they're teaching the Word of God, and their mind turns to porn. They see that person undressed sitting out there in a congregation. If I was a woman, that'd make me so mad, uh, really upset. And uh, I think before I ever would regularly attend a church, I would find and make sure the pastor's not addicted to porn mm -hmm. because he'll be undressing you. When he greets people coming in, greets people leaving, whatever, he will undress you.
every woman becomes a porn star to a porn addict. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, but, so, you, uh, so you, you said we need to be aware of the issue um, as a first point of strategy. One, we need to be sure that we're not addicted to it. If we are, it, it, what if a pastor is or a father is or a mother is addicted to it, Josh? What, what, what do you do? The majority of the time, not all, but the majority of the time, it takes two to five years to become free. Mm. Not somebody laying their hands on you. Two to five years because of what it does to the brain. You've got to reverse what's called neurological pathways in the brain. So one, you got to have the understanding. It's not something you're just going to go for counseling and get over it. Second, most people need professional counseling. Most people do. You can't go to a pastor or a counselor in the church. They're not equipped. They're not equipped for it to deal with the brain. And so you got to be aware and you got to get professional counseling, except in a rare situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will often say to someone, I said, I will help you find counseling. And often what I do is I have my secretary call four or five counselors around that person wherever they live and interview them. Do they deal with porn very much? A lot of counselors don't know how to deal with porn. Do they deal with porn a lot? And then we recommend, I like to recommend two different sources for a person to go to for counseling. But I can't count. I'm not, a, I'm not equipped to counsel them. I'm equipped to teach the scriptures to them and everything else, which, which is wonderful. It's very needed. But to understand the intricacies of porn and what it does, you need professional training. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say most people must go to counselors. And often my wife and I will say, we'll pay for the first three counseling sessions. Boy, it gets expensive, <laughs> especially if you're helping five, six people at one time. But yeah, we, will, we will pay for two, three uh, things. And then if it's young people, then I say, uh, by the third session, you need to invite your parents to join you. Ooh-wee. But that's so critical. If you do not get the parents involved, <laughs> one, if I were a parent and a counselor is going on and on and never encourage the son to talk to me or the daughter, whatever, and go on, I would be so mad. I'd probably get them fired, even though they don't work for somebody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd get them fired. Uh, you need to bring parents into it. And most parents would be understanding. Most parents, and all my research shows, most parents would be understanding. I say to young people, if you can share it with your folks, do it. You're an mm -hmm. advantage there. And mm -hmm. share it in a way that you're asking for help. Dad, I need your help. Mom, I need your help. Mom, I watch porn. I can't help it. Most of them can't. And a lot of it started at a friend's house. Mm -hmm. At a friend's house. Or where parents do the most foolish thing. They allow a cell phone or an iPad into a kid's bedroom. Mm -hmm. And they close the door and they go right to porn. So I, for much of the children's addiction to porn, I blame the parents. Because they don't take precautions. They don't interact. I can't imagine any parent raising a child and every once in a while not bringing up porn in the conversation. Mm -hmm. One of the best things if the mom or dad had been into porn and, and had become free, 
share that with your child. Share that with your child. Uh, share how you became free and everything. Because if they're not watching porn, you need to equip that child that if they do see it and become attracted to it, they have a freedom to come to you. Yes. And this is why when a child can say, well, you shouldn't do that. You know what the Bible says about that. You don't do that. That drives your child away. You listen to them and then say, son or daughter, can I share with you some insights on porn? And hoping the parent is equipped to do that and share with a child. The, oh, the, the most fortunate child in the world is a child feels totally free to go to mom and dad for anything. Mm. I used to tell my kids all the time, you, there's nothing you can do to stop my love for you. Nothing. There's nothing you can say to me that will shock me. There's nothing you can ever share with me that I won't say, I want to work with you on it. And I would hammer this home in my children all the time. And that, that is a key for a child. Yeah, and I like what you're saying specifically in regards to listening to your children. It's not something that um, just on the topic of porn, you want your kids to feel safe to you and come and talk to you. It's establishing that long before there's an issue and not just about porn, but anything that, that, that pathway is open so that your kids know they, that you love them and that they can trust you with anything. The good things, the bad here's things, doesn't the, matter. Here's some of the thing that attentive, attentive parents need to bring up with their children, have time with them, explain it all. One, they've got to develop convictions in their child's life about the Bible about Jesus, about the resurrection, about truth, about love. Don't take it for granted that your kids have convictions about the Bible. Oh, they'll tell you, oh, the Bible's the word of God or everything else, but they have no idea why they believe it. Hmm. And if you don't know why you believe it, it won't have much of an impact in your life, whether it's the Bible, Jesus, resurrection, what. Second, you've got to deal with loneliness. You bring it up. Don't if you wait for your child to bring it up, often the horse is already out of the barn. Mm. You got to bring it up where you can close the door for the horse getting out. Loneliness, depression. You've got to touch today on CRT, critical race theory. It's so destructive. And so many Christians are getting involved in it. Christian organizations are becoming tainted by it. And you've got to prepare your child for CRT. And then the other is cohabitation. I wouldn't wait for my child to bring something up. I would bring cohabitation up with them because they're going to know people who cohabitate. Kids in the church, everything, people. And don't, please, parent, don't wait for your child to bring it up to you. You bring it up to your child in normal conversations that it just becomes a part of life. It's like my son once said, well, you know, things like this are no big deal to us. It was just part of our family conversation, whether around the table and the way to church and a way to a ball game and a way to a movie or having coffee at a Starbucks or a, what's another coffee shop? One with good coffee. Big B. Just yeah, pick one. one. With good coffee. Anyone. <laughs> yeah. I'm, there's one near us. I was trying to think of it. And then you've got to discuss love because there's no word with a greater misunderstanding today than love. And there's probably no word except maybe truth that people cannot define. I can't remember the last time I could find somebody who could define love. 
in an intelligent, practical way. And yet everybody used it. I did it because I loved him. I loved her. I loved him. And they can't even define it. And so one thing with my children, I mean, at an early age, at four or five years old, they could define love. All of my children could. Then, of course, you got to talk about porn and you have to talk about the Internet. There's nothing more persuasive today, more intrusive, and more potential danger, as well as potential good in the internet. Mm. I mean, uh, here, here's some stats on the internet. These, these are staggering. It processes 1.742 quadrillion gigabytes of data every day. Each gigabyte has 64,700 pages of data. So you take 1.742 quadrillion gigabytes, multiply that out, it comes out to 112 da-da-da-da, sextillion pages on the internet. Mm. It's incredible. We, our minds cannot grasp the size of the internet. As in just 2016, now many more, there were over 1 billion websites. 1 billion. And here's the key. One click away of Google searches. It's hard to really get up-to-date stats, but in 2018, they did, there were 6 billion Google searches every day. Whew. That's 250 million every hour. That influences you. And it influences our kids. In 2019, 500 hours were uploaded to the internet every 60 seconds. 500 hours. All of that to affect people's behavior to affect their thinking. 30,000 hours every 60 minutes is uploaded to the internet. This YouTube watched is 2.3 trillion last year. <laughs> Folks, I don't care what it says, that affects you. That affects the culture, affects the nation, affects the world. It, it, it indoctrinates a person. Just on Wikipedia, and this was five years ago, the latest could get it all, over 34 million pages. And it's just one website of multi-millions of websites. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to talk to our children about porn and about the internet. If not, I believe as a parent, you're derelict. Now some parents will be upset with me out there, but they're the problem, I'm not. If you're not talking to your mm -hmm. children very young about these things, you're derelict as a parent. You're a failing parent. Right. And these people say, oh, my kids won't look at porn. That usually says to me, their children are looking at porn. Why? Because they've never talked to them about it. They haven't equipped mm -hmm. them to deal with it, how to handle it when they see it. And so when somebody says, well, my children never watch porn, <laughs> in my mind, well, they probably are then because you're not aware of it. And I cannot tell you how many parents, pastors, and usually it's the mother or the wife calling me about, I mean, key people, many of them, you would all know, saying, Josh, what do I do? I just learned my daughter's into porn. My, my two children are into porn. My son's into porn. And one pastor called me, wasn't a, was it over a year ago because of COVID lockdown, and I talked about porn in the church. 
And he came up to me and said, I'm glad you spoke on that, but let me tell you. My kids don't watch porn. He called me that night in my hotel and apologized. Because when he got home, he was interacting with his uh, first-year student and said some of the things I said about porn. He says, Dad, I'm addicted to porn. Hmm. And it's just, it crushed him. It crushed him. And he called me and apologized for his attitude when I said that probably your own children are watching it. And just because somebody says, no, I'm not, you don't take that for granted. You, you, you pry a little more. Here's the principle with children. Somebody says to me, what's the number one key in raising a child? Most even people that work with children hem a hall around, well, boy, that's a tough question. It's an easy question. It's simple. The number one principle without it, you probably won't succeed very well. At least most won't. And this is rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Mm. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Kids don't respond to rules. Kids respond to rules in the context of a loving, intimate relationship, especially with the daddy. Truth without relationships leads to rejection. Discipline without relationships leads to bitterness and resentment. I would never want to discipline a child who didn't know that I absolutely loved him. Mm. It'll backfire. It'll backfire. It won't accomplish what you want it to accomplish. Harvard did an 80 year study. Can you imagine that? 80 years studying. They wanted to find out what is the key to happiness? What produces happiness in a person's life? And after 80 years, they not long ago released the study. They found one thing, one key thing relationships. Harvard University mm -hmm. learned that relationships leads to happiness. And that's so true with a child and within a family. And so those are some of my observations yeah. with um, young people. You know what? You have given us so much, Josh, to, to think about. I'm so grateful for that. I, I'm just thinking here on the practical level, um, Andrew, as we think about this podcast Certainly, this could be a starting point for parents uh, to, to listen to the advice from a, a wise, sagest uh, lover of God and, uh, and take that advice and, and make this your first step to... Well, you can do this. Your audience, just go to josh.org. That's yeah. easy to remember. josh.org forward slash parenting or forward slash seven A's. Seven A's of parenting, because they all begin in, with an A. And uh, you can download it. It's all free. There's many other resources there, all free, that can help you as a mom or dad. And what bothers me is I've got three daughters and a son, 11 grandkids now. I never knew when you get older. And, I, you know, I'm 81. And... Uh, the joy my children bring to my life. They're in their 40s, 45. My son is 45. And uh, I don't know what it's like getting older and not having a loving, dynamic, close relationship with your children. I, I heard for people like that uh, because God intended our children to, to grow up and bring joy into our lives. 
I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for my wife. So much what I learned about parenting came from her. My folks didn't have a marriage. They had a battleground. Her folks had an incredible marriage. In fact, one of the things that attracted me to my wife is the way she talked about her mom and dad and her brother and sister. I just hadn't pe- heard people talking about their parents that way. So I, re- I went up there. I got a good reason when we were dating to visit her house just because I had to meet her parents. And they were everything that she talked about. And I learned so much from seeing my wife's parents love each other and love the kids and all. I mean, they had their faults, uh, like we all do. It's good to watch others and grow up and have kids that love you. I know if anything happened to me, physically anything else, my children would step in and take care of me, take care of their mother, everything. And that's that's a real satisfying feeling and knowledge. Uh, to it. So then just go to my website, josh.org forward slash parenting or seven A's of parenting would take you right to those seven A's principles on establishing a loving, intimate relationship that brings about change. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion, guys. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good word. And we'll be sure to link that on the, uh, the physiology page for sure and share that information. Josh, this has been fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for for letting me join you and I got to run here, but this has been cool. I like, I like the informality of the way you ask questions and everything. That's good. Well, good. Well, uh, Josh, thank you. Yes, thank you for your time and God bless you too as well. Bye-bye. Okay, well, welcome back. And um, if you couldn't tell already from the timestamp in your uh, podcast feed, this is obviously going to be a much longer physiology uh, podcast than what you're used to. So if you're breaking this up into a couple of parts or listening onto a double speed, uh, we totally understand um, this is a bit of an unusual episode. But we really do feel like um, that as a result of you know this interview and this conversation, we feel like we owe it to you, our listener, that we should really continue the idea of theology, doing theology in community with each other. And uh, felt like that we should address some of the things that came up in this important episode and this great opportunity to talk with, honestly, a theological giant um, of his day and even of our day still, uh, Josh McDowell. I mean, his books are everywhere. Um, his writings are everywhere. He's well known. Uh, within the evangelical uh, circles. And so, I mean, can you, do you have a website that's just your name.org? Cause I don't. <laughs> and so if that speaks to the nature of his impact, josh.org, that is well, just, that's it's amazing. Right on, right on. <laughs> so here's, um, if I would, I'm just going to start because I'm coming from the perspective of the listener. I, I listened to this um, after you guys recorded it. I was obviously not a part of the com- the original conversation and recording. And so allow me just to give my few takeaways on it. And then we'll kind of launch into the conversation and allow you guys to um, also uh, to share your thoughts on this. Um, I, I will just tell you that um, listening to this, um, I, I felt like... Um, man, a lot of different thoughts came to mind. (laughs) And I was trying to also just try to be understanding. And and I think where this episode could go is it could honestly find itself into, I feel like if you were to put Fox News and CNN in a room together, 
uh, this is what it could become. You know what I mean? Is this bickering war. And I feel like where this could potentially go is a just a sliver of the culture war and a sliver of the regu- of the conversations that mm-hmm. are taking place politically and really everywhere else in our world right now. And right. so, and to be honest with you, it felt like a lot of the language that I was hearing out of Josh was really regurgitation from other places within culture that I felt like probably were not so much rooted and grounded in scripture or the gospel. And that is of really no a fault of his. I just feel like that this is just kind of what we're dealing with in this world right now, our divergence of thought, ideas, ideology, um, and visions of the future. And ultimately we're trying to get after is what is truth? Um, and where is Jesus in all of this? And so, uh, for me, I, I, I recognize this and I also re- recognize too, that when we're dealing with generational divides and we're dealing with generational differences, and we're also dealing with uh, evolution of thought and thinking, um, in study that these kind of camps start forming. And so I want to be sensitive to all of that. And, and I know that we are here at Ephesiology and we want to really dig down into the deep, you know, into the depths of, of scripture historically but also apply those things to today's audience as well. So the two things that really stood out to me the most, and I think probably you as the listener um, heard, and I think we have to just address the overall premise is if the topic of the podcast was in fact to address, how do we build resilient children into the faith today? um, Josh's premise was twofold uh, and they were about two primary issues he claims that if we want to see children be resilient moving forward in the faith, uh, we have to address two significant issues that are a challenge and a threat to our culture, to, to the church, and to our children. And that is pornography as being the first, and the second, CRT, or uh, critical race theory. Um, to me, that those both, I, I feel like, as I listen to that, I, I, I question it right away because I'm not so sure if those, in fact, are the two greatest threats for the church right now. And I think we should address that. Um, but even the and address the nuances of those things um, as to why are they perceived as such? And, and maybe we could start there as to why are these two issues perceived as being the biggest threats to the church today? Um, just to kind of give some, some general, you know, just to be generous here in the conversation, because Josh obviously brought, I mean, he's, he's been around for a long time. He's got a lot of experience. He's much older than I am, uh, you know, and he's been, he's been through a lot more life than I have seen more things ministered to more people. So who am I to, to disagree with that? But I think we should at least address the idea. Why are those two issues perceived as being the biggest threats to Christianity today? Well, he certainly introduces the data in regards to pornography and how that is a threat. And I don't think anyone would necessarily disagree with Josh in terms of pornography being a threat. Um, I I think it is absolutely a threat to Christianity, to the church, and to uh, our young people today. Uh, The the question is, is is it the biggest threat? Um, you know, I think I would land on uh, pornography is one of the biggest threats. Uh, it is a threat, um, but there are other threats, and and we've tried to address some of those even in our series. Andrew, you were sitting there with me. What were your thoughts? If if you noticed, I was quiet a lot 
because I think I was doing a whole lot of thinking and um, sometimes when I speak quickly, it may not be kind or it may not be well thought out. And I was worried that I was going to launch unkindly into a, a set of thoughts. So I stayed quiet. Um, I think to answer your question, Matt, actually, I was not expecting that question from you. And so I'm kind of like, oh, now I'm really wrestling. Why would he posit pornography and CRT uh, being the two greatest threats to the gospel in the world today? Um, I think at least part of it does make sense in my mind if you link it back to purity culture a little bit. Like purity culture is we have to be pure to show ourselves um authentic Christians. If I'm going to boil it down like that, if we are impure, then what are we doing is, is I think maybe some of the argument for the purity culture. And so um, pornography is one of the greatest threats to being pure. And so it's access. And again, let's not regurgitate the stats. It's a problem. It's a big problem. And, um, because it is so easily accessible and because it makes such an impact on the brain, um, it's, it's traumatic, but the gospel is, I don't think overall thwarted entirely in its <laughs> continued spread in the globe. Um, it may not be the greatest threat to the gospel. Um, it for sure is an a hindrance to any one of us if we are if we are dabbling in it if we are going to it if we are running to it as a release instead of dealing with the actual lives that we have here uh, the relationships that we have if we are married uh, it is a, a distraction but pornography is evil full stop it's a problem yeah. I don't know if I'm going to say it's the greatest threat to the gospel, but I, I would, I don't want to take the conversation here for us to waste any time saying how great of a threat is it? I don't think that's really worth our time. It's a problem. What, what, what's most concerning for me is if we leave the idea with pornography being it's a problem and if you are dealing with it, then you are in sin. And so you just need to get yourself right. Because I think that's one way that pornography, the conversation around pornography comes about. And as I myself who have has dealt with uh, pornography in my own past, I mean, this is very much part of my story um, is allowing Christ to work through me so that that wasn't the thing that I kept running to in my younger years. When somebody is in pornography, they already feel like crap. I mean, the shame cycle with pornography is actually what keeps people running to that. And so the shame cycle uh, around porn uh, keeps somebody in porn. So when somebody says pornography is killing you and you have to stop that doesn't help you stop all that's doing is adding weight to it like yes i already feel like a cockroach you know i already feel horrible and dirty and thank you for reminding me of that um 
But what needs to be told when we're talking about porn is not it sucks, it's vile, it's evil, and it's ruining you. It's it is antithetical to all that God has for you. And if you find yourself in that, go and talk to a friend. And I will just take a small tangent. Not every issue around pornography needs to be dealt with at a, uh, I need to go and talk to a professional counselor level. Being a discipleship issue, sure. At some point in the nature of the relationship and you've got a friend of yours that you feel like you're in concerned about, then yes, bring up the question if you feel like you've got that level of trust. But if you feel like the pornography is, is the end-all be-all of the matter of the heart, I, I feel like we need to, we got to back that train up a little bit unless there's something more to it. Um, or we perceive that there's something more that it's undermining, which I think there is, you know, pornography and issues of this seek to undermine, um, you know, human sexuality um, quite a bit. And that matters. Um, and I'm going to go somewhere with that point in just a second. But just to assume that, like, that's going to be the target that I'm going to hit every time, I think kind of misses the individual, you know, I mean, it, we might as well just you know, we're going to have litmus tests for people and ask them, do you smoke marijuana? Do you, how many drinks of, how many alcohol, alcohol drinks do you drink in a, in a week? Um, I mean, the list now goes on, where does it end? You know what I mean? I think is all of a sudden we, we immediately move from uh, freedom in Christ. And, and not that I'm suggesting that your, you know, <laughs> your addiction to pornography is somewhere in the category of freedom in Christ, but we move from that place to pure legalism instantly. Mm -hmm. And so I think yeah. we, we need to be careful when, when we have these kind of tests then which we're trying to judge somebody's heart on. Well, yeah, because it's like, we're broken. We came to Christ because we needed him. We came to Christ because we were running to anything else to satisfy us, uh, to feel whole. And everything that we have always run to is still going to leave us broken, except Jesus Christ. And so, like you're saying, Matt, like the idea or the feeling of this litmus test, like just it's whatever the, the thing is of the day. Is it going to be pornography? Are you, are you good enough yet? uh yeah. racism are you good enough yet um are you are, greedy are you i mean eating? why why isn't that the first question how many bowls of ice cream have you eaten this week you know like where does yeah. it go where and does so it I, so i think with this is if if somebody and again if you are asking a whole lot of people and a whole lot of people are telling you that they're struggling with porn and they have a problem uh uh it hurt me to hear like, I'm the last person you want to tell that to. Really? I would hope that you would be the best person I could tell that to because you're a brother in Christ who can understand and say, you know what? Let's try to walk with you through this so you can get back to, uh, away from this, receive the grace in Christ and start taking some steps towards wholeness. And that is available in the body of Christ. That is available because Christ gives us that grace. And then we can proceed together arm in arm towards health and restoration. There is an opportunity. Porn is not a death sentence and it shouldn't be treated as such. Christ has grace for us and we can continue walking together. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's so important for us to keep in mind that, uh, that you know, we need to think of a gracious way in which we address these issues 
and uh, it, and uh, you know, a podcast can only go so far, right? Um, I, I'm sure as if we had had much more time to drill down more deeply into these uh, issues that perhaps that we would have gotten to that point of the need for grace. Um, as as we know, I mean, identity, our Christian identity is so important to the conversation that we've been having at Ephesiology. And this gets at that issue. You know, if we're uh, identified with Christ, um, there, there are core beliefs that we hold. Um, there's a community that we belong to. And, and it should be characterized by uh, the grace that uh, has been extended to us from Christ, as we see in, in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and there is a behavior that's expected uh, of us. You know, Paul it comes down very hard on sexual immorality and homosexuality and, and so on. Um, and, uh, and we should be no less hard uh, on those uh, behavioral sins uh, either. But keeping that in the context of this gracious, believing community that is striving together to be imitators of God. And, uh, and um, you know what, it, it, we are in this uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, because we should say, pornography is bad. Like we're not having this conversation by trying to mitigate it or say it's not that bad. Like it's bad. It's really bad. And I spent a lot of time after this podcast, after we recorded it, I sat down with my friend, uh, Joe Madison. Uh, he runs an organization called Demand Disruption, Disruption um, trying to continue to educate and help people see how bad porn is and its effect on human trafficking and the fact that often it's it's not a one-to-one -one that everybody who looks at porn is going to try to then buy a person for sex but it is clear everybody who ends up trying to buy someone for sex it started with pornography and so how do you disrupt well you you start impacting the people who are looking at porn and help them get off of that cycle so but Joe and I both were in agreement. All the stats were good. All the stats were, were true um, about pornography and its ills. But now it's like, how do we help somebody who's in the muck? How do we come alongside and say, we are free in Christ. This is bad. Let's move forward together as mm. sons and daughters of the King. Mm. Let's go and live for him. Can you give that uh, uh, organization name again, Andrew? Demand Disruption. Uh, we'll try to link it in our show notes. A great resource for anybody who is looking for more information and perhaps a constructive way to move forward on this issue. Um, so let's let's go back to the original question. And, and I think that how these two ideas, here's, here's, my, here's my theory as to why Josh was hung up on these two things, okay? And I'm gonna present it to you and then I want you guys to do with it as you please we're doing theology and community here is I hear pornography and CRT as being the biggest threats to Christianity and our young people today. Okay. And where I hear is um, I look at that and I go, I think they missed the mark 
because I don't think they actually are addressing the real issues. But I do see that the the reason why he goes there and why these two things are connected is because they are perceived as um, uh, they are perceived as undermining um, the Imago Day. I think they're perceived as undermining um, individuals and individual um, our, our identities in which we truly and rightly find in God and in Christ. And so I think there are more reactions out of fear of and fear of pornography seeks to undermine human sexuality um, and personal worth and image and value. Whereas CRT, and here's where I think the two are connected, CRT has been used to justify perhaps homosexuality, transsexuality, and gender um, equality, things like that. And I think the two things are connected in that regard, in that regard only. Um, and so I think they're perceived as threats to personal, oops, hit my mic, to, I think they're perceived as threats to one's individuality and what we would see as being one's identity right um is what we rightly find in a, in a christian identity or what we would say that the theology teaches us as to who we really are and i think that it just they to me it comes across as straw man fallacies to me i think they come across as being straw man arguments i don't know i think they're more symptomatic um of uh, of the deeper issues at play um, I think, you know, if you do studies and look at who, who digs into pornography, um, it, it, it's not this evil thing that I think is being pushed by a liberal agenda in which somebody's trying to force and, gen and normalize our genders, uh, upon us. I, 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 that is, that's a, that's a conspiracy theory <laughs> that's not happening. Does it occur? Yeah, maybe. Is that a result of, because we're engaging in these, uh, in, in this, uh, practice? or many people are quite possibly. Um, but I don't see that as being some sort of agenda that's being pushed by some sort of liberal ideology. And the same thing with CRT. So like if pornography is one thing, uh, which we can call as being evil and wrong, whereas CRT, you know, critical race theory actually is an academic study that seeks to expose wrongful systems in our world that actually can offer a helpful critique but when it's used, when someone perceives it as being used to support the other thing, then it can only be wrong and evil mm. and seeks to undermine your worldview and your ideology. Whereas we've got to sort through this mess and we've got here at Ephesiology, what we're trying to do is rise above it. Because if all truth is God's truth, and if we're going to be those who are doing theology in community and in culture, then we've got to be able to see above this and we've got to be able to appeal to the higher place where mm -hmm. true knowledge and wisdom come from, which is of course found in our God uh, through scriptures and through the anointing of the Holy Spirit and revealed to us in Jesus Christ, then there must be something more to this. And so I, I look to Josh's arguments and I say, I think you're missing the mark. I, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's deeper than that. And I think there's probably some more fundamental practices that I think we need to be thinking about um, and I think it's not these two things. I, I think that those to me are just talking points. Uh, that to me is, is Fox News um, talking points uh, in, in my mind. Um, uh, what are you guys thinking? I mean, I, I, you think I'm off base? Am I? Am I? <laughs> no, I you know, I think, uh, Matt, I think you've, you've, you've expressed it well. 
Um, because I do think, I, I think what people are reacting to when we hear critical race theory uh, and when it comes particularly into a Christian discourse is uh, they hear the application of it and, and certain practitioners who are applying certain things uh, and, and using critical race theory to do that. But as you mentioned, critical race theory is an academic theory. Uh, that's its root. And as any theory uh, should be, critical race theory should be tested and applied and tested and applied and, and uh, proven whether or not it's an accurate or inaccurate theory. Um, and what we're seeing today in critical race theory is that, I, at least my observation of it, is that when it is applied uh, to, to the issue of race, there are very constructive uh, things that we can learn about uh, systems and uh, uh, tendencies and uh, our history and, and those types of things. And, and we need to hear that um, uh, because so often, as we know, it, when we, we are so entrenched in our own cultures, it's sometimes difficult to even see uh, the, the, the good or the bad in our culture. And to have these voices speaking critically into those cultures is important for us to be aware of issues that are occurring. And so where I see, for example, value in critical race theory um, is in the idea of gender inequality. Yes, critical race theory critiques that. And we've got to recognize that there are issues Systemically speaking, uh, culturally and culturally speaking, in the context of North America, that um, that, it, that we need to address uh, in regards to gender inequality, equal pay, for example, uh, in those types of issues, uh, racial discrimination. Absolutely, that still happens in the context of of uh, our culture in North America. In fact, this isn't just a North American issue. This is a global issue because North America is not in the United States specifically is not the only country that uh, deals with racism. Uh, as I travel in different parts of the world, uh, it's regularly that I address or I hear conversations about racism, whether it's one people group uh, being racist for another toward another. And so we need to uh, be aware of that. And critical race theory it provides a tool for us to evaluate. Uh, unhealthy power structures as well would be another area where it's good to uh, hear the, the critical race theorists to understand how we might uh, better and more effectively address issues of power structures and so forth. Um, wealth disparity. Uh, as well, is a place where critical race theory will uh, help us identify these kinds of disparities and work toward uh, solutions. Uh, legal discrimination would be another one. And these are all issues that should concern us as Christians, gender, race, uh, power, wealth, and, and uh, uh, legality, issues of legality should be of concern to us as Christians. Um, do we necessarily need critical race theory to help us have those concerns? Well, not necessarily. We should be able to see those in our own culture if we were to have the eyes 
to see it. But so often we get, like I mentioned, so immersed in our own context that we have blinders on. And so a theory like critical race theory helps us to understand that there are issues in culture uh, that we need to be aware of and, uh, um, and begin to think then as a community, uh, how do we address these issues? And I think one of the one of the things that makes this such a hard topic is that um, so my church is Southern Baptist, and right now, like the whole Southern Baptist convention is about to go to war over um, this idea of CRT. And mm-hmm. one of the difficulties is you have one group of people that are saying, just like you're saying, Michael, like, racism is an issue. (laughs) It's a big issue. And CRT is helping to highlight it. Whereas people were um, happy to ignore racism where it was showing up. And um, it's finally, I don't want to say getting its due, but it's finally having the spotlight put on it and saying systemic racism and racism in general is a problem and we need to deal with it. And I, I'm with you. The Bible is clear. We That should not be who we are. Um, we should be for the, again, as Matt already touched on, building up the Imago Dei wherever we see it. So where some people come off as proponents of CRT, they are seeing injustice and saying injustice is happening. We need to stand against it. Whereas people who are like Matt, using CRT as a straw man, they are attacking CRT because they see what it, uh, the logical outcomes that could be taken place if, if these were all taken to their logical ends. And um, they're not a big fan of that, but it seems to the other side, what I was calling out for this injustice to stop. And you're saying, you can't call that out because it's against the gospel. Yeah. And well, I think here, Andrew, what's important is to, again, be able to, to distinguish between uh, the academic discipline uh, that is inherent in a theory and the application of right. that theory to social problems. And, uh, we should, and we should always critique both. I mean, we should never close our eyes to uh, the academic critique of a theory, nor should we close our eyes to the academic critique of solutions. And uh, and unfortunately, what I think has happened in uh, our discourse, uh, public discourse on critical race theory, is that we look at a few of the solutions that have been offered by some practitioners um, and to be specific here, uh, that pertain to issues of sexual identity, uh, that pertain to transgender affirmation, uh, th- that are pertaining to gender expression, um, as, as well as, as other issues. Uh, there, as Christians, we should clearly critique those and land strongly on a biblically informed worldview of those issues. Uh, there's there there um, there I say this uh, I guess I will. There's not a lot of wiggle room on some of these issues, um, as much as we might want to think that there is or want there to be. Um, there's just simply not. Now at the same time, uh, again thinking of critical race theory as an academic uh, uh, theory. Um, 
it, it can be utilized to constructively uh, critique issues in our culture. And, and, uh, and I, I mean, I would say that as a church in North America, we have not done that well. Um, you know, we have our hot button issues in North American, particularly North American evangelicalism. Those are where we tend to camp. Um, we're blind to other issues. And so, I mean, you know, speaking as an academic, as a missiologist, uh, a theory that's going to be used constructively to help me identify issues that are going on in society that scripture can clearly address as a solution, then I think there's great benefit to uh, to that kind of theory. Um, or the, the, the other alternative uh, would be, let's think then ourselves that as a, as a community of people who want to engage uh, the culture with the gospel, let's think, how do we engage? How can we effectively, uh, effectively engage culture? Uh, because, you know, we should be very well aware, uh, just as Jesus was in his day, that uh, there is injustice in society. It's wherever there is humanity, there is going to be injustice. And uh, we should be able to have eyes of all people on the face of the planet Earth. Christians should be able to have eyes that see injustice and then present a biblically informed uh, perspective about how to engage it. Um, we've not done that well. And, uh, and critical race theory is, is doing that. Um, me, for one, as from an academic perspective, I appreciate that critique. I want to listen to it. Um, I want to take what's good. As we've said, uh, Andrew, I think you or Matt, you alluded to this, that all truth is God's truth. Um, uh, and so we take what's good in that, what seems to align with Scripture, and let's engage it. Let's address it, uh, and let's do it constructively for God's glory. What I appreciate about this conversation and what I'm hoping our listeners are engaging with here is the notion of how do we really discernly, like Jesus sends out his disciples into the world to be as shrewd as serpents and as, and for us to be really be wise and discerning and to uh, follow in the ways of his Holy Spirit that allow us to engage in this world. And if I were just to flip the conversation just for a moment, um, it, if you think about it, we as Christians are often, uh, constantly trying to rebring the church, bring Christianity back into the cultural conversation. We do that because we believe that theology, that there's nothing that theology doesn't touch. That theology is not just the study of God, but it's also the study of how God interacts with his world and his creation. And so therefore nothing is hands off from theology. Um, but we should also, so it, of course, if you were sitting on the other side as a non-believer or somebody who's like, I don't believe in any of this Christian stuff. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in any of his works and miracles, but I do know that I know some Christians who are some of the most hateful, hypocritical people that I've ever met. That means you, that means 
you need to be shut down and you should not be permitted to uh, operate in this world, right? Because you've, I've heard your scriptures used against to oppress other people's group, right? When we do that to things like CRT, we're kind of applying some of the same logic train. And I think we just need to be cautious about like, if we think theology affects everything and it impacts everything and it touches everything, then it should also have an engagement with all these things. And we should be able to think through CRT and go, you know, critical race theory and go, maybe it has something to apply here. Maybe there is something we can learn from it. And how do we interact within society in the greater world? And maybe we can learn something, maybe we can reveal something about us that maybe we've missed. And I think for us, we just need to be more honest and we just need to be more willing and open to say, perhaps there's something here that I haven't seen before. Putting, I mean, this is a biblical principle, putting yourself into somebody else's shoes for a moment, loving your neighbors, you love yourself. How, how am I truly loving my neighbor until I understand? the place in which they live, where they're coming from. Why are you engaged in pornography to the level that you are? Why do you feel enslaved by it? Why are you as a person of color feeling as if the world um, is out to get you or you can't advance in society? Is there something perhaps I have missed in your experience of this world and life that perhaps I haven't experienced in my life? And that draws me to hunger, to want to love my neighbor more. It draws me back to the scriptures. And as Michael, you rightly said, how do I then pursue justice for the widow, for the orphan, for everyone, everywhere, and bringing the gospel to bear? Uh, I think this conversation deserves a much broader uh, conversation, more in-depth uh, critical race theory. Uh, guys, we should do this again, and we should actually have a more in-depth po podcast on this. Um if you guys are up for it, Michael, I know that you have also uh, written uh, an article as well that has now been published on the Physiology blog uh, regarding this as well as to critical race theory. And so we just want to encourage our listeners to head over to physiology.com uh, to take a look at that latest podcast or that latest blog post as well, where Michael kind of unpacks critical race theory and this, this concept a little further, a little more deeper. Um, in our kind of final moment here, I do, we should just kind of go back to that conversation with Josh and Josh, um, you know, I think kind of provides some helpful, it maybe some helpfulness, I think moving forward. And, and actually I just kind of want to even spin it a little bit and go, where do we go moving forward? How do we start kind of building resilient children? What is the greater call for the Christian? And for us as parents, as concerned citizens, as people who are, you know, uh, disciples of Jesus and really concerned about the next generation, uh, where do we start leading our children? How do we help them navigate these, these waters of, of an intersection of ideas? Do we close them off? Do we just kind of shut them out from the world? How do we helpfully engage them into the world um, with, with these kind of things that are coming about? Where, where do we go from here? Well, I, I, Josh brought this up, and uh, just by example of his own family uh, and the openness that they've had in having conversations. And I, you know what? I really think that it starts there. As parents of children who are living in really what appears to us as a strange and difficult times, we need to be available to our children and listen to them. And hear the concerns that uh, they are feeling uh, and expressing and engage with them, uh, particularly those who are uh, continue to be in school, uh, but to engage with them on the things that they're learning and, and, uh, and really, you know, give our attention to our children fully. 
in and my mind, that was actually. Hasn't this, Andrew, I was just thinking our, back to our conversation uh, with your buddy, Matt. This came up then. It, just how important it is for us as parents to be with our children. I mean, it's not just enough to, uh, you know, spend a, a few minutes in a day or even a long period of time in a day, but, but uh, in each other's presence, but to engage with them, to have conversations uh, with them. You know, every moment that we have with our children is a discipleship moment. And, and we should be taking advantage of those times because, you know, as Lori and I know now, uh, we have three children. Uh, they're grown up. One, uh, two of them are away from home uh, at quite a distance. Another is getting married uh, next month. And uh, uh, those times of being in close proximity to each other have uh, gone away. And while that's sad, the one thing that we look back at is the times that we had together and how meaningful those were and how uh, intentional we were to utilize those times to build into our children's lives, uh, whether they would be in car rides or around the dinner table or playing games together or, you know, whatever, out on the soccer pitch or tennis court or the archery range, wherever, uh, we were available to our children. And, you know, that has knit us together in a way that um, we will never regret. And uh, we see the fruit of that in our children's lives today as they're on their own engaging in a world that is very different from the world that Laurie and I knew growing up. But, uh, and what we're seeing is that they're being successful and they're being challenged by the world, but they're standing on their faith. And uh, that faith has been rooted in their identity as they uh, grew in their walks with the Lord uh, in their childhood. I think it's actually funny that some of the things that you're saying and anybody who's listened to uh, our Raising Resilience series raising resilient children series um they probably actually got come to the conclusion wow didn't we say that last episode didn't we say that two episodes ago because it just seems like we keep hitting on some of the same themes and uh matt you just jumped in and said you know how do we approach others uh with grace with humility we listen why why are you what, what is it like for you to experience this what is it like for you to have gone through this how do you approach these issues why are you running to these things why are we surprised that's also good advice for parenting that we listen to our kids why are you experiencing these things this way how is this coming across to you um i think uh, it should be no surprise to us that our children are people. And so how we interact with other people who are not blood relatives um, should actually inform how we interact with our own children. And that we also love, respect, treat them with grace, with humility, come and listen. And at the same time, acknowledge our role as parents and we have to guide. We don't just say, you know, that's great feeling, but you know, these are, these are some helpful ways, then let's do this together. We're in this together and we're going to continue to move towards our Christ likeness. Um, seems wise, seems wise. Matt, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I guess my concluding thought is just, um, 
uh, as I agree, I'm, I think that listening is going to be key. Who's going to be the one who is going to sit with our children and um, shepherd them, guide them, lead them through the complexity of the world? And I realize that as a parent, as a millennial parent, actually, um, I feel at times ill-equipped and unprepared for a growing world that is far more vague and far more complex and moving at a very fast pace in the world of competition of ideas and also um, just growing diversity. And um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, my conservative background tribe told me not to be okay with that. It informed me and indoctrinated in a way that said, don't be okay with that, reject it. And um, I think that is going to only, that only contributes to the problems, but rather we need to engage. We need to learn to adapt. We need to learn from Paul and his ministry in Ephesus. And he walked into a world of great complexity and, um, and one of, uh, I think of vagueness at times. And so we need to learn, we need to grow. We need to trust God's spirit through all of this. And we do need to sit and listen and, and guide our children through it. And so I think for us, um, that needs to be the mode. And I think for many parents out there, you feel very unprepared. I think for grandparents, uh, you are fearful because the world is, and Michael, you articulated it. The world is not what it once used to be. It's very different. It's changing rapidly. And I think, um, I think for us, we do need to, this is, these are the changing times for us and uh, going back to the way it was, is not an option, but, um, we do recognize that the days forward are challenging, but they're not necessarily ones to be feared. Um, mm -hmm. but rather they're opportunities for us to see God in a new light for us to see the gospel, uh, break forth to see Jesus do that reconciling work that he promises us. Um, and that, which he's because going to he's bring given us now. Yes. Like he's given us now. He didn't just give us yesterday. And it's like, well, we have to go back to that one time where we were able to do ministry. Yeah. Like he's given us today and yeah. he's called us to be faithful today. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, and you know, I just, the only thing that I would add to that is that, you know, he's given us now and now we have a beautiful opportunity to walk through and experience these things together with our children and uh, cher cherish those times. Yeah, yeah, amen. amen. As difficult as they're going to be, as difficult as they're going to be, cherish them. Um, uh, you won't regret it. That's a good word, Michael. I need that today. I appreciate it. Well, to everyone, thanks for enduring with us <laughs> on this extra long episode of the Ephesiology Podcast. And thanks for doing and practicing theology and community with us here. We're glad that you are part of the growing Ephesiology global community. Uh, learn more about Ephesiology and get access to free missional resources for you, your church, and your leadership teams at physiology.com. So for Michael, Andrew, and myself, we'll talk again soon right here on the Ephesiology Podcast.